Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it is uh, October the 19th. Uh, the future up top seems to have uh, dematerialized for a moment, but I hope it comes back. Um, we are living in weird times, very weird. The newspaper headlines this morning are all about science and the future of science and, of course, the pandemic, herd immunity, mass murder. Uh, are we going to get a, a, a are we going to get a solution to the current plague changes the very nature of time, old standards, new standards, uh, the, the need for speed in this new age. Uh, and the other thing that I think is happening today is the realization that there is a new economic reality on the horizon, or perhaps even uh, in the midst of this, it's the Chinese economy, perhaps that's the future of this scientific world. It expanded 5% in the third quarter uh, of last year. So China is a reality on, on, on the science front. The future then seems to be all of us wearing masks, wandering around. The future then is the past. Perhaps it's a kind of return to the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. Two guys who are particularly well-suited to talking about the future, my old friend, Poe Bronson, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about his writing career, uh, and my new friend, Arvind Gupta, who uh, uh, is a venture capitalist now at the Mayfield Fund and previously was with IndieBio. Both uh, 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 Arvind and Poe are either current or ex-IndieBio guys. This is a a kind of accelerator fund, an innovation center uh, designed to invent the future and fund the future. Uh, as I said, these guys now have written the book, I think, or a book on the future. It's called Decoding the World, a roadmap for the questioner on the science of our future. It's a buddy book and it's a travel book. And I think <laughs> I've said enough. I want to introduce Arvin. Um, Arvin, the book, whilst it is an investigation of the future, is very physical. Mm. Uh, and I want to begin with you. You, you, you. you travel around the world. You're in China. You're in Poland. You're in Germany. You're in Argentina. Let's begin in the very concrete present. And I mean that both literally and metaphorically. Uh, you begin the book at the Yiwu a shopping center. You call it the world supermarket in China. What does this tell us, this strange place about the future of science and about decoding the world? So Yiwu is a, a fascinating place. You would never know it existed unless you wanted to buy a shipping container a, a sized amount of, say, rubber ducks in order to sell at a stall, you know, in Nairobi. <laughs> so... Um, the, all the things that you see in convenience stores, in markets around the world, including in America, 
are made in the factories of China. And there's a new Silk Road that has been um, that has been uh, created that starts in this mall, in this world supermarket in Yiwu, which is about an hour by bullet train ride um, from Shanghai. And basically, imagine a mall like the normal mall that you would go to, um, and every store is actually a storefront for an entire factory. So one store might have every permutation of Santa Claus uh, swag you might ever want to see, right? Santa for the for the roof of your house, Santa for the for the front lawn, and you could buy shipping containers, right? all the all the religious paraphernalia. It's it's an incredible to walk through the rubber bands. Right? Where do rubber bands come from? They come from from Iwu in the Silk Road. And what I realized when I was there is for the world to keep producing these goods the way it is, the new Silk Road of the 21st century has to look vastly different. We need to be able to reinvent the way we produce these products and distribute it to the world, or we face ruinous destruction of the environment around us. And that is what made me really start thinking about a new way. And that led me to create IndieBio. It led me to this idea that biology as a technology could rebalance the equations of production and basically create a new Silk Road that are act that actually are distributed around the world using biology. Uh, po, uh, you you begin also not in China but in Paris, looking into the window of a store, looking at a photo of China of this new city, Pudong, which is, I'm quoting you, no ghost, no joke. You're also talking about this material future. Tell me about that story in Paris. Why does it resonate? Why did you put it at the beginning of the book? Yeah, I was walking through Saint-Germain at night where there's a lot of galleries and was struck by, at a distance, in the glass of this gallery, what first appeared to be just like, a huge white image of some sort, but mostly white. As we approached it and learned what it is, I learned that it was a massive photograph, some 10 feet by 10 feet tall, of a model of Pudong. <laughs> so Pudong was a brand new city. China was like, we're not going to try to grow our cities. We're going to build brand new cities in the middle of nowhere. And Pudong was the first one. And they built it for 5 million people, but nobody lived there. It was called a ghost city. So the artwork captured this uninhabited ghost city with one exception. When you got really close to the glass, you could realize that it was a murder scene and that a woman was standing over a man who she had murdered and nobody else was there in this ghost city. And I was entranced by it. We, my whole family liked this work. It began to learn about the ghost cities of China. Today, Pudong is full of 5 million people, not just one ghost city, but there are a hundred new cities that have been built across China and all of them have 5 million people. And what most Americans don't realize is that in 120 of the countries around the world, China is building brand new cities for all these other countries. So while we Americans have gone around selling our movies abroad and our Facebooks and our Instagrams and our virtual world, China has been reinventing the physical material world for two thirds of the world.
It's incredible. Uh, and uh, it comes back to uh, the headline about China as the future, uh, China as the place that um, uh, that uh, is reinventing the world. Uh, so Pudong and uh, and Yi Wu, they're, they're, they're really different sides of the same coin. Is that fair, Arwind? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, um, you know, China is exporting everything, right? And so, and, and in doing so, they can reinvent everything. The question will be, um, and as another theme in the book is inertia tends to be the most powerful force. Yeah. There is. And so when you're very good at doing something one way, it's very hard to change that. Yeah, and, so, and the, the issue of uh, inertia, and, and I, I, sorry to interrupt you, yeah, uh, Arvin, but this is a perfect intro. We're not yeah. setting you up here. Uh, <laughs> as a VC, your big enemy is inertia, and you find yourself not in China, but in Bogatynia in Poland, uh, which is, it, it seems to be a, a symbol of the profound inertia, perhaps, of Northern Europe. Tell me about Bogatynia and why that's the natural segue from, from Yi Wu and from uh, Pudong. Yeah. So, you know, I'm driving along uh, in Poland and, you know, I just pass this fence and there's this, you know, is the gap in the trees and you can see just this literally shimmering air and great black expanse. And it was, it was literally unearthly. You know, like that's the best word I could use to describe it. And, you know, it caused me to literally turn around and go see what the hell that was. I, I did a U-turn on the highway, came back and like looked out over the chain link fence and saw the biggest pit I've ever seen in my life. And it was a coal pit. Bogatini is a coal mining town. And, you know, we, we in America hear about like all the coal pits going, you know, are shutting down and everything. In Bogatinia and in Poland, they're going strong. And it's because there is this inertia, this way that it's always been done and all the subsidies and everything that keeps the way things have been done going into the future. Even though we have better solutions, even though burning brown coal is 10 times worse for the, for the environment than even clean coal or anything that cleaner coal um you know it's just why would you do it because we've always done it and this town depends on it what are we gonna do with the town right like it it goes back to these types of questions and so when we have solutions when people are like we have a solution how come you won't take it well it's because you've got to fight all that inertia all that weight behind what's already happening yeah, and uh, I'm not sure if I think uh, uh, Poe, you you wrote this, but it's it's a, again very much in 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 Arvin's uh, discourse. You say with uh, with with Hegelian succinctness, we are not going to dematerialize the world; we are going to rematerialize it. And I found that a very profound statement. What do you mean by it? Well, as I was saying before. There's this reinvention of our virtual worlds, the creation of virtual worlds, where the material world maybe matters less and less to people at any one time. We've taken our eye off of this. And there was a thesis running throughout the last decade that the resource scarcity problem that Arvin was talking about, the climate change problem that Arvin was talking about, that, that it was actually solving itself. 
because we humans, we didn't have to buy a new bicycle by everybody. We could share bicycles and we could use lighter weight materials and we could have lighter boats and lighter cars, use less material. Cars would last longer. So it'd be sucking less of the raw materials of industrializing industrialization out of the earth and that we would slowly actually be dematerializing that premise captivated people there's ted talks on it it's total bullshit well we know i mean uh, <laughs> it's not close thing, to uh, being true oh, you, cars and I, are one thing you and i agree on that's why we've been friends for so long yeah. all, all ted talks are shit, right yeah. <laughs> it's a popular ted talk by definition it's going to be wrong is that fair? <laughs> that's fair like yeah it's just the promise of an idea really all that data showed was that after the recession of 2008 and 2009 we were using less stuff and so it made the grass look great. As soon as the economy recovered, the, the globe was extracting more resources than ever. We call it the four earth problem that by the year 2050, we have to extract out of the earth four times as much as we are currently extracting out of the earth. And this goes to rematerialization. Rematerialization is a recognition that there's no out, we have to solve it. And as Arvin said, I hate to get, go to physics here, we have to create essentially like for like, take everything we love, not brand new stuff we don't have never seen before, like flying cars, stuff we love, like food, and reinvent it at lower energy rates, lower energy in, lower energy states, in order to um, create a, a loving economy full of all the stuff we love. And when Barvin says that biology is a technology that can do this, it's important to understand that the industrialization of all of the global economies of the last 200 years had a silent partner, which was chemistry. Chemistry uses all sorts of toxins to rip apart molecules and conform them to our will. Biology is a low energy form of chemistry. It does things naturally at low energy states, reproducing chemistry. That's the discovery we have to do all over again. And that's why I like having guys like you on the show, because you're not just schlepping out the same old Silicon Valley cliches. You have a, a, a list uh, in your book of Silicon <laughs> Valley cliches about living on Mars and robots taking all our jobs and blah, blah, blah. But the one I think that is particularly intriguing to me, and I'd like to get your take, particularly uh, Arvin, is on CRISPR, on codes that create new life how does that fit into the to your rematerialization thesis Arvin? so it'll that that is one of the bases of how we're rematerializing the world we take bacteria fungus different chassis these living organisms and then add genes to them so they make these new products whether it's heme to make a plant-based burger taste more like a actual hamburger from a cow um so we are gonna or, get uh, we are gonna get beef meatballs without killing cow for sure that's not a question you're good we're gonna get i think we already have gonna, those don't we anyway we do they're called veggie burgers that's right and, and the technology the, the point is all of these foods will taste better and better and better and more like the thing that we love that's destroying the planet. 
and then we will be able to make the choice to not destroy the planet um, in what we consume. And Gen Z, millennials, will do it for that. And boomers and Gen X will do it for the health benefits. Um, and so, you know, going back to CRISPR, what, what CRISPR won't do is create a new human species. Right? It's not going to allow us to create designer babies. We're not going to have designer Peter Thiel's then, right? No, <laughs> we definitely will not. <laughs> uh, Poe, with your particular genius of combining popular culture and sophisticated science, you compare genetic engineering with a cooking show, uh, maintaining our theme of food and, and hamburgers, uh, vegetarian hamburgers. What's the relationship between genetic engineering and CRISPR and cooking shows? Well, people think genetic engineering must be incredibly hard and complicated and technical. So I thought I would write a chapter about genetic engineering, a new way to do kidney transplants, as if it was a TV cooking show, to show them quite the opposite. That for genetic engineering, the steps of doing it are literally the same steps you would do in a kitchen on a cooking show. You're going to order your ingredients. You're going to mix them. You're going to let them sit a little bit. Then you're going to do put, apply energy, normally heat, but in this case, a little bit of electricity. And then you're going to wait a while for it to sort of firm up on you and all be done. And in fact, those are the steps in the lab of doing genetic engineering. That's what you do. So we need. Uh, so maybe on Now TV we have a, a cooking show about genetic engineering. How about but, that? But here's the thing: what it does also highlights is the absurdity of the analogy too, which is that doing the genetic engineering is actually quite easy. It's knowing what to edit, what to engineer, that is actually still very rarefied knowledge, and uh, it's not like people say there's, we should be worried about CRISPR because uh, it could be dangerous. It's like saying fire is hot. Like in the future, people will have these little fire sticks and they'll be able to light a fire in their own house. It'll be really dangerous. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, we all have these little fire sticks on our mantle. No big deal. Um, and knowing what to edit is actually very, very hard. It takes a particular kind of genius to figure out. This is serious stuff in a way. I mean, we can laugh about genetic engineering being like a cooking show, but um, it's pretty serious stuff. It seems from reading your book, reading between the lines perhaps, that you both think, particularly Arvin, we're on the brink of a profound new age. You find yourself in Northern Europe, uh, you, you were in Poland, then you go to Northern Germany or the, the border between Germany and Poland. You go to, to Wittenberg, to the, the church where Luther uh, pinned his theses, which created in many ways the modern world. Uh, and you also write about Copernicus. Are we with the science that you guys at IndieBio playing with, investing in, um, uh, experimenting with? Are we on the verge of a new Copernican age, Arvin, of where everything changes, where we rethink the very nature of existence of the universe? Uh, yes, we're in the middle of it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a it's a big wave that's been kind of going for the last 30 years and it's just picking up steam. And one thing that I never really appreciated until recently is how long these wave, revolutionary waves take. So 
you know, we've been doing this for six years and so much has changed. Six years ago, no one had ever thought of biology as being applied to anything but making drugs. Six years later, we've got billions of dollars worth of uh, companies that are making meat without cows, making, you know, re rematerializing the world, you know, making wood without trees, uh, concrete from CO2 and climate change. And it's only been six years. These things, these revolutions take decades. And the, the end result is always a revolution that's far greater than even the most imaginative person could ever uh, write about or think about. Um, and everyone thinks it always happened a lot faster than it does. Right. And, and in the book, you, you, you say, uh, you note that it took Copernicus two decades to work out his astronomy. <laughs> And then you walk from where Luther lived down to the church where he pinned his thesis and you said it took Luther 20 minutes. So who, who is the 21st century Copernicus and who's the 21st century Luther? Great question. And that, this is really about social revolutions and technological revolutions happening hand in hand. So in here, Copernicus is climate change. Copernicus is a real world problems that are forcing everyone to get into the technological solutions that are going to happen from this. So the whole world switching to plant-based foods comes from a very simple uh, root cause. Everyone looking around saying, hmm, California's on fire, Australia's on fire, there's a bunch of hurricanes coming up the Gulf, uh, I guess climate change might be real, what can I do? And turns out they can't do much, they could change what they eat, and that's where it starts. So now capitalism will start to provide new solutions for eating well without harming the climate. It will provide new solutions for people dressing well and all the way down the line. Go ahead, Poe. Well, if, 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 if Jennifer Doudna, who just won the Nobel Prize, uh, is the Copernicus of this revolution, yeah. then Greta Thunberg, is the Martin Luther. I like that. She I'm is gonna, the one that I, is... I ask which of you is the Copernicus or... <laughs> nah, no, no chance, man. I think Greta is a better, a better Luther. Yes. We're, we're just the bankers. <laughs> <laughs> we're financing it all. Yeah. So say more about that, Poe, because I think that's a fascinating well, observation. We, we strongly believe that all technological revolutions are social revolutions and all social revolutions are technological revolutions. And when Arvin went to Wittenberg, his key thesis was that the scientific revolution possibly didn't start with Copernicus and then Bacon. It actually started with Martin Luther because prior to that time, it was absolutely taboo to question the church's authority on anything. Martin Luther made questioning the church possible and then probable. And actually those very set of ideas were circling around in Poland and, and were a part of Copernicus getting the courage at his death to actually publish uh, his observations. And in our world today, we have the tools of re-engineering the world being created at laboratories, but it is the social movement that is driving it. It is not a technologically led movement. It is a socially led movement. And what we see, what we're doing in IndieBio, look, I'll just be really clear. When I met Arvind, I was walking down Jesse Street out here and I first met him and I came down to this basement. And I saw all the crazy science fiction stuff they were doing. 
I thought I was Tom Wolf, and Tom is a friend of mine. I thought I'd met my Kim Kesey. I thought I meant like this guy is leading a social revolution. Everyone thinks it's a technological revolution, but in fact, it's a social revolution. Yeah, you call you call the place. Uh, I haven't been over. I will come soon. Uh, you call the place the cave, which kind of reminded me of bats and the fact that the the, the, the COVID virus uh, we can blame on bats. You begin the book with bats too. I hope you're not you're not playing around with a, 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 a new uh, a, a new problem at, uh, at uh, Indubio, are you? No, June. Arvin, do you trust this guy to run this shop now? I mean, how, how much did he get you to drink to convince him to become the new CEO? No, no I handed him the keys. I mean, uh, look, we, we need as much capital. We need as many people. Uh, financing and investing in and helping nurture these scientists as possible. And so I could see, I could have stayed at IndyBio and continued to do that from the ivory basement, but going to Sand Hill Road itself, the very doorstep of the valley with all of the riches that it has and being able to then take what we've learned at IndyBio and, and continue that cause from Sand Hill Road itself was an opportunity that... Um, that I had to take uh, in order to really fulfill the mission. And what I like about decoding uh, the world, your book, is that it, it, it's deeply humanist. You, you quote our book Camus, and you use Camus to talk about the moral responsibilities of editing the code of life, which is, of course, one of the keys to figuring out this, 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 this moral dilemma of CRISPR. What, why Camus, Arvin? What interested you about him? Well, Camus, you know, he, he understands life as being fundamentally absurd, what he calls absurd, right? Has, it has no intrinsic meaning. And the more people try to ascribe an intrinsic meaning to life, the more absurd it gets, right? The, the harder it is to grasp. Rather than look at your life and, and editing the actual, the actual code of life is determining the meaning and creating the meaning for your own life on your own terms. Um, you know, like it, it really is a path. Like if you think about it, we, we are born, everyone's born. And then what happens next? You go to school. And what happens after you go to school? You go get a job. So these are like, that is the code of life. And we can edit that code if we understand it as such. And I think so many people have a hard time such, I was speaking on an alumni panel. What would you do differently if you could do it again? And just, you know, remind all the students that like things aren't necessarily linear. We're in a society that bakes linearity into, you know, do this, then this, then this, then this, and then get your house and your car and your spouse and, you know, kids. And, and things aren't like that. And having understanding that you can edit that gives you a power, gives people a power to own their own life in a way that doesn't have a lot of pain and, and anger oftentimes attached to it. So, you know, as a deep, Camus is deeply personal to me because when I was going through that myself, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, um, you know, reading uh, the myth of Sisyphus and his other works helped me kind of calm down a little bit about yeah, it. The book is actually quite... Um... It's an amazing book because it, it touches on all these big scientific issues, the issue of China, of, of rematerializing the, the physical world. But it's also quite a personal book about your own 
very strange narrative from going from a, a dropout living on the streets of, of Berkeley to becoming <laughs> one of the, the most successful venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. Poe, final question. This is a hard one for you. What color is this? <laughs> Andrew is referring to a chapter where I write, don't judge blue by its color. Don't judge blue by its color, which is a cryptic code into itself. Um, we all see the same spectrum and there's a protein in our brains that bends when the light hits it but we perceive color differently because of the way we have trained our brain has trained itself to adjust to shadows and lightness to what we think we're seeing and in this way this great disagreement across our society the culmination of what you just showed there andrew was the dress that broke the internet when half the internet saw gold and black and the other half saw white and blue and we we couldn't agree on taxation. We couldn't agree on conspiratorial scandals. We couldn't agree on what to do about Black Lives Matter. We couldn't even agree what color it was. And it was highlighting this role of perception, not necessarily the science, in altering the meaning of life. But uh, some people be watching this poem thinking, oh, here goes Poe, the ultimate sophisticated postmodernist. There are no truths. And yet this is also a book about the ultimate truth of biological science, of chemistry. How do you square those two seemingly incompatible things? By altering people's perception, we bring them closer together. By teaching people some of the actual fundamentals, they start seeing how their own mind is working and they begin to uh, have greater fidelity to the actual science. And then through that, we get on the same page. We get on the same page. So right now in the pandemic, there's still a lot of political chaos around the science. Um, you know, when the pandemic hit, uh, we went home. We went back to our homes for a day. And then we were like, this isn't us. And we did eight investments in the next 25 days creating up not eight new companies, but funding some existing companies to do work and creating about four brand new ones to attack COVID. We have drugs and clinical trials. We have testing companies over my shoulder. There's a tremendous amount of agency that's afforded when you actually know the science. You can turn it into something that is powerful. Well, you've introduced my favorite word. You always know the way to my heart. Uh, or at least my the heart of my intellect, which is agency. Uh, and I think that's what you guys are all about. That's the nature of the book and the nature of, of Indie Bio. We're going to break the rules, as uh, I always do with, with, with innovators like yourself. The one rule I have in this show is we ask, uh, we ask our guests for a suggestion of the book. And ever since the pandemic broke, the one rule I had was you're not allowed to use Camus play. So in honor of Arvin and, uh, and uh, Poe, I want you to tell me why everyone now should read Camus' The Plague. We've, all, we've already talked a little bit about it. What's, what's the big deal about Camus' Plague? And please introduce the theme of agency. It's the heart of the book. So in The Plague, uh, Camus was working off a different pandemic or epidemic, which was cholera epidemic. And the characters in the book 
are eerily like our Zoom lives today. Their inability to do something, to build ability to understand what's happening, their inability to even change each other's minds as to what's going on, this sort of uh, waiting for it all to end and having no impact on it is eerily reflective of what we're seeing today in our society. I think what we're trying to do with decoding the world is to teach people that you can just ask simple questions. We make science out to be so complicated. It's just asking a simple question. Where is the soul? What's beautiful? What is the meaning of life? Is there a way to stop slaughtering animals? Is there a way to solve climate change and not destroy the economy? These are simple questions. Science is just a pursuit of the answers of those questions. And it's not some technical mumbo jumbo that's beyond the reach of ordinary people. Arvin, let's end with you. You were the guy who introduced uh, Camus into the book, into the conversation. So you end on Camus. Yeah, it's, a, it's an attack on fatalism. You know, we, we don't have to sit back and accept our fate. We can create the future for ourselves that we want to see, whether or not we can influence the final outcome, right? We will all die one day. But what happens between now and then is up to us. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.